It's good morning. Good to see you this morning. Good to be with you gathered around the Word of God and the truths of God's Word as we sang together. What a wonderful, encouraging morning it's been already. If you join me in standing for the reading of God's Word, please, we're in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 1. It should be on the screen for you as I read. You can follow along there. Or if you have a copy of the Scriptures with you, good for you. This is church. You should probably bring a copy of the Scriptures with you. And so I encourage you to do that. If you have your copy of the Scriptures, open up to Acts chapter 1. I'm going to be reading 1 through 11, verse 1 through 11, as you follow along. The Acts of the Apostles. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which, he said, you heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Father, we want to ask for your work in our hearts this morning as we consider your word, as Jeremy has already prayed and asked, we need desperately eyes to see, hearts to believe, wills to obey. We cannot do it in and of ourselves, but it is only your work by your Spirit in us that causes us to believe and to obey. I pray that you would strengthen us in our faith this morning. Remind us of who we are. Give us a renewed purpose and renewed energy for what you have called us to as your people. And I do pray for those among us, and there are several here who do not know your Son, Jesus. They do not know him as King and Lord. They may know about him. They may agree with truths about him. But they have yet to submit their life to him. 
I pray that this morning they would see that Jesus, your son, demands their life, demands everything. And that if they want to be a part of his kingdom, they must bow to him as king. I pray that they would see that this morning and that you would do a work of the Spirit to save them, give them the gift of repentance and faith in your Son, Jesus Christ. We pray for all of these things, for your glory, for your praise, in your name. Amen. Well, this morning marks a significant day for Trinity Church as we embark on a new series together through the book of Acts. I've had a lot of people tell me how excited they are for the book of Acts, mostly because they're confused by it, and they're like, I can't wait till you tell us what is supposed to happen in the book of Acts. I'm excited about this book. It's a wonderful book, and we are going to spend this school year mainly in uh, the book of Acts, going through its chapters, and I'm excited for that as we embark on that journey today. How should we understand the book of Acts? In the discussion of biblical interpretation, that is, the question of how we are to rightly uh, read and understand and ascertain the meaning of Scripture, few books get as much attention as the book of Acts. What is the book of Acts? How are we to understand it and read it and get at its meaning? Is the book of Acts meant as a simple description of the events and movements that take place in the early church? Or is it a prescription? Is it a prescription for us? Is it meant to tell us how we are to live and to act in the church today? Which is it? Well, we know that this book, the book of Acts, serves as a second volume to a two-volume work written by a traveling companion of the Apostle Paul named Luke. The first volume of his work is the Gospel of Luke. There in the opening of the Gospel of Luke, Luke tells us what his overall aim is in writing his two-volume work. Let's refresh our memory real quick by returning to the beginning of the book of Luke. Luke chapter 1, 1 through 4. I'm going to read it for you if you would like to turn there. That is fantastic. Turning in your Bible to the passage is a good idea. Luke chapter 1, verse 1 through 4. Listen to these words. Luke says, Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us. So he says, many people have uh, set forth to put forward all the events that have happened. Just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all the things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that... Here he gives his purpose, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. Here he gives us his purpose for Luke, and I believe this extends in principle to the book of Acts as well. Both volumes have this as their aim, to give certainty regarding what has taken place and what has been taught. Luke wants to give an accurate account to a man named Theophilus, a lover of God, so that he may have 
This reader, Theophilus, may have certainty regarding what he has been taught. In other words, Luke Acts is a type of historical account. It is correct in its historical detail. In fact, there are no historians in the ancient world that can hold a candle to the accuracy of the historian Luke. Everything that he writes has been verified, fact-checked, followed up on extensively. And he is detailed and accurate in everything he writes. It is a type of historical account, an orderly and careful description of what took place. However, however, and this is what I'm trying to say, it, it is a description, but it is more than a description. It is more than just a description or a historical account of what took place. Luke wants his readers to respond. Luke wants his readers to respond to what they read. He wants to strengthen and encourage them in their faith. He wants to embolden them in their witness. He also seeks to make a defense of the faith. This is an apologetic to those who might be skeptical or doubt or not believe. He wants his readers to reckon with the implications of this historical account. It is the story of Jesus and it demands a response. The book before us, the book of Acts, is a compelling, gripping narrative history of the early church. It is not meant, though, to merely fascinate or interest us. It is also not meant to cause speculations and debates and disunity in the church. No, the book of Acts is aimed at calling us to faith calling us to faith and involvement with the grand and glorious purposes of God in salvation history. We cannot just read the book of Acts. We must respond. And it is this approach that we're going to take throughout the book of Acts. We're not going to just look at all the cool stories and all the cool unfolding events. No, we're going we're gonna to call each other to respond to what we've heard. Strengthen one another in our faith. Call one another to believe. And involve themselves in what God is doing in the world. In the first 11 verses, the first 11 verses here of the book of Acts, Luke communicates to us the scope of his work. In what amounts to an introduction or prologue, preface of the main body of his work. By the way, when you're reading a book, do you read the introduction? You should. Do you read the prologue, the prefaces? Do you read all that? All that stuff that comes before chapter one, do you read all that stuff? You should. It's extremely important. If you don't read it, you're going to miss out on what the uh, author is trying to communicate to you. Here, Luke gives us an introduction to his work. And in this introduction, he is going to give to us the definition of the content of this book. 
He's going to give to us the key for understanding the book's purpose. And this, this, is how, this is how wonderful this introduction is. He's actually going to lay out for us the outline of his book. He's going to tell us exactly what he's trying to accomplish, giving us the definition of its content, the key to understanding the book's purpose, and the outline of his book. Luke first gives us the definition of the book's content by linking this work to his first volume. Look at it there in verse 1 through 3. In the first book, O Theophilus. So he's writing to the same man, Theophilus, lover of God. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. Until the day when he was taken up, after he had given the commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen, he presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. Luke says that in the gospel account, the first work, he dealt with all that Jesus began to do and to teach. Now now stop right there and think about this. If you stop and and just consider what he's saying, what he's implying is that what will fill the pages of his second work is what Jesus continued to do and to teach. The life and ministry of Jesus, part two. Well, this is quite a statement because we see he tells us the time period of Jesus' beginning, the beginning of his work what is, what is Luke considered to be the beginning of Jesus' mission? Well, he gives us the exact time period. Look at what he says. Until, he says, I gave you what Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up. Now, this is referencing his ascension in the book of Luke. Luke considers, get what he's saying here. Luke considers the beginning of Jesus' ministry to conclude with his ascension after his death and resurrection. The mission of Jesus, the beginning of the mission, concluded with his ascension. The mission of Jesus that he was sent by his Father to accomplish doesn't end at the cross or in the resurrection or even at the ascension when he goes back to heaven to be with his Father. That is not where the mission ends. In fact, that was just the beginning. The book of Acts tells us of the continuation of the mission of Jesus. And who is going to continue his ministry? Who is going to continue his mission? Well, look, he gives us there. The apostles, after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. Jesus had chosen men to be his apostles. Those are his representatives. These men were invested with authority of Jesus, the authority of Jesus to continue doing and teaching as Jesus would have them do and teach. Wherever they go, whatever they do, they will be carrying the name Of Jesus. The apostles are tasked with carrying out the mission of Jesus. And look at the preparation 
Look at the preparation they received for this mission. Look at verse 3. He presented himself alive to them. He presented himself alive to them. Luke is saying that it is certain that Jesus is alive and that he has presented himself alive to his apostles after his suffering by many proofs. Now, unfortunately, the ESV, which is what I'm reading from, does not include the descriptor here that other translators do. The word for proofs actually means undeniable proofs, incontrovertible proofs, convincing and decisive proofs, infallible proofs. These proofs, undeniable, infallible proofs, were given to his apostles. Now, we know also in the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 15 that Jesus also showed himself to over 500 people after his resurrection. But here in Acts, Luke specifies this particular group, the group of men who Jesus chose to be his apostles. And he reveals himself to them with many infallible, undeniable proofs. These proofs are decisive. The fact that Jesus has risen from the dead cannot be denied. It is this undeniable reality that completely transforms this group of men. Do you remember this group of men, his apostles that he called in the Gospels? Do you remember this group of men? Were they an impressive group of men? Were were they the ones that you would think would be chosen to continue the ministry of the Lord and Savior Jesus? Not at all. They are a group of self-interested, bickering, doubting, fighting men. Completely, completely unqualified for such a mission. But it is the undeniable reality of the resurrection of Jesus that transforms this group of men from what they were in the gospel accounts to what they will be in the book of Acts. Bold, courageous, even to the point of death. And they will not be the last ones transformed by this undeniable reality of Christ's resurrection. So that is the message that they are to take the message of the risen Lord in Christ. These men will proclaim. And this is why Jesus spends time talking to them of the kingdom of God. Do you see that there in verse three? He presented himself alive to them after suffering by many infallible proofs. And by the way, if you're, if you use the ESV, just write in there infallible proofs appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. 
Why does Jesus talk to them of the kingdom of God? Because the king has triumphed. And the news of this victory and the inevitable reign of the king must be proclaimed. They're going to be heralds of the kingdom of God. Now this term, kingdom of God, is an important term in the book of Acts. Simply defined, the kingdom of God speaks of the rule of God over his people through the king that he has appointed. Jesus has proven himself to be the God-appointed king. And he is forming a people to enjoy his rule as king. The apostles are those whom the king has chosen to go out and gather in those who are his people. So this is the focus of the book of Acts. This is the definition of its contents. The continuation of the mission Jesus received from his father to gather a people for his kingdom. That is what the book of Acts is about. The continuation of the mission Jesus received from the Father to gather a people for his kingdom. But the apostles are not ready to be sent just yet, we find. Before the apostles are to be launched out into their mission, they must pause. Jesus tells them to wait. And it is my means of this pause that Luke gives us the key to reading the book. Here's the key to reading and understanding how this book unfolds. Follow the movement of the Spirit. Follow the movement of the Spirit. It is the movement of His Holy Spirit that will mark the progression of this mission. Look at it there in verse number 4. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Now this, this is one of those passages that people have questions about. What in the world is the baptism of the Holy Spirit? And what we do with this is the baptism of the Holy Spirit, we bring with, with us our pre-understanding, our pre-formed theology, and we try, to define, we try to define baptism of the Spirit by looking up. This, this is important. When you're reading the text, you can't understand the text by looking up to consider the text. You have to look down into the text to understand the text. Look at what the text is actually saying. The apostles must wait for what Luke calls here the promise of the Father. It is a baptism with the Holy Spirit, which in the text is helpfully contrasted with the baptism of John the Baptist. Now, if you don't remember or know who John the Baptist is, how many of you remember who John the Baptist is? Remember who John the Baptist is? John the Baptist was the forerunner or preparer for the coming king. Luke tells us that he was a man chosen by God to prepare the way of the Lord. His job was to tell people of the coming kingdom and prepare them for its coming. Now, how did he do this? How did he prepare them for the coming? 
kingdom. He called them to a baptism of repentance. A baptism of repentance by means of immersion in water. Now, baptism. Baptism was not invented by John the Baptist. You realize that? Baptism was not even invented by Jesus. Baptism was an ancient way of communicating that you were identifying with a teacher or a message or a group of people, a religious sect. So John the Baptist was not the only person baptizing in his day. There were many who were baptizing, gathering to themselves followers. You would be baptized to identify with a message or a teacher or a group of people. Now John warned people of the coming kingdom and called them to repent of their sin and to signify their repentance and their preparation for the coming king through baptism in water. And this baptism was meant to symbolize their cleansing and preparation for the coming king. John the Baptist was a great servant of God and many believed that he even might be the Messiah they were waiting for. He might be the Christ or the king himself. But he tells them in Luke chapter 3, verse 16 and 17. Listen to Luke chapter 3. This is an important text to understand what's happening here. Luke chapter 3, verse 16 and 17. John, when they came to him and said, Are you the Christ? Are you the king? Are you the one we're waiting for? John answered them all saying, I baptize you with water. But he who is mightier than I is coming. The strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. John says, no, I'm not the king. I baptize with water. My, My baptism is a baptism of preparation. I'm not the one you're waiting for. In fact, the one who's coming, I'm not even worthy to untie his shoes. He's mightier than I. He says, when he comes, the one who is mightier than I, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork, he goes on to say, is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. So here's what John the Baptist says. My baptism is a baptism of water. But the one who is mightier than me, I am unworthy to even untie his shoes. The one coming, he will baptize with the Holy Spirit and with fire. He will gather his wheat into the barn. But the chaff, he will burn with unquenchable fire. So what he's saying is, the one coming, he will bring salvation, and with that salvation also will come judgment. The coming of the Holy Spirit signifies the coming of salvation. And with that salvation, the coming of judgment. He says that when the true king comes, he will baptize with the Holy Spirit. He will bring ultimate salvation and judgment. So the baptism of the Holy Spirit signifies the coming of the kingdom in its salvation and judgment. In fact, this book that we are about to embark on, many suggest we should refer to this book as the Acts 
of the Holy Spirit. Because indeed, that is what you have in this book. The Holy Spirit being poured out to signify that Jesus has accomplished salvation for his people. And his kingdom has come. And with that is a warning of judgment for all those who see the pouring out of the Spirit and do not respond with faith. The Father pours out His Spirit to signify that salvation has come. Get this. His people, not just have been, they just have not been symbolically cleansed. They haven't just been symbolically cleansed, but His people have been truly cleansed of their sin by the sacrifice of the King. They are the people of his kingdom. He is going to mark the people of his kingdom by giving them the Holy Spirit. And this people, they are protected from the judgment that is in store for the enemies of God. The book of Acts has great significance in the story of salvation history. The pouring out of the Spirit signifies nothing less than the coming of the kingdom and identifies those who are indeed God's people. So, then this is important for our understanding of the book of Acts as well. Listen, the book of Acts is the record of the continuation of Jesus' mission, which he was given by the Father to gather a people for his kingdom, and these people will be identified by the pouring out of the Spirit. Now, what we have covered to this point, verse 1 through 5, is a summary of the end of the book of Luke in chapter 24 of that volume. Luke summarizes that material, but also serves to give us our bearings in this volume. What is this book about? It is a record of the continuation of Jesus' mission, which he has given by his Father to gather a people for his kingdom, and he is identifying these people by the pouring out of his Spirit. At this point, though, He continues his overlap with the end of Luke, but instead of summarizing what Luke says, he now expands on what Luke has said. Very briefly, dealt with in the book of Luke chapter 24. In this expansion, Luke sets the trajectory for the rest of the book. He gives us the outline of his book. And what does he expand upon? He expands upon the account of Jesus' ascension which is located at the end of Luke chapter 24, very briefly, but here he expands upon it and tells us what happened. So there, look at it starting in verse 6. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? As we look here at verse 6, we see that the matter of the kingdom is what is on the mind of the apostles, and rightfully so. This is the hope and expectation of all of Israel. That God would restore the kingdom to Israel as he had promised in the Old Testament. Add to that fact that Jesus has been appearing to them for 40 days speaking to them about the kingdom of God. And you can understand their question. Jesus, is it at this time now that you are going to restore the kingdom to Israel? Can you even begin to imagine What is going on in the hearts and minds of these men? Imagine what that 40 days was like. I mean, the the master that they had followed, the Lord that they had followed, he has risen from the dead and has appeared to them with many, many decisive, undeniable proofs 
He's alive. And he's speaking to them of the coming kingdom of God. And their involvement with the kingdom of God. Can you imagine what's going through their minds and hearts as they, as they fellowship with him and listen to him? So as they're gathered together here in verse 6, they ask him, Lord, is it now? Is now the time that you are going to restore the kingdom to Israel? The kingdom being restored to Israel meant that Jesus would establish himself as the appointed king of God in Jerusalem, gather his people, the people of Israel, to himself, and by that gathering, destroy those who are his enemies. Gather in his people, Israel, and destroy those who are in opposition. What they are asking for is a political kingdom. And once again, rightfully so. For they're convinced that Jesus is the Messiah that they've been waiting for, and that his kingdom has come. And he is. And it has. But, they don't yet grasp They don't yet grasp the scope of what Jesus is accomplishing. In other words, they aren't thinking big enough. They aren't understanding what Jesus is actually doing. Now here we briefly, and oh so briefly, pick up the debate on whether or not the kingdom is spiritual or political, physical. Is the kingdom here and now, or is it something we still wait for? Is it a spiritual kingdom that is here and now, or is it a future kingdom that comes in political power, a physical, literal kingdom? The helpful way for me to think about the kingdom, and I hope this is helpful for you, the helpful way for me to think about the kingdom of God is with this phrase of already, not yet. Now, some don't like that terminology, but for me it's helpful. The kingdom is already but not yet. The giving of the Spirit signifies the coming of the kingdom. Where His Spirit, this is what I'm saying, where His Spirit is poured out, His kingdom has broken in. The fact that He has given you the Spirit is an indication that He has brought His kingdom to bear in your life. He is your King. His rule is in effect. He reigns over your life. He has demands to your obedience. The giving of the Spirit signifies the coming of the kingdom. Where His Spirit is poured out, His kingdom has broken in. But we do not yet experience the full realization of that kingdom. Some would say that we should not be expecting a political or physical or literal kingdom. But look at what Jesus says, and and his answer is insightful in that regard. Look at what he says. He said to them, after they asked this question, are you going to restore the kingdom to Israel now? He said to them, it is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. In other words, he does not dismiss their question regarding a political kingdom. He doesn't say, no, 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 no. Don't you get it? By now, we're accomplishing a spiritual kingdom. No, that's not what he says. What he says is, it is not for you to know the times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. In other words, he implies, that's for another time. And that is not your business. 
That is what the Father has fixed by his own authority. In other words, he says, you don't need to worry yourself about that. That is the Father's business. But he does have work for them to do. He does have business for them to conduct. The times and seasons of the coming literal kingdom, that is not what they need to concern themselves with, but there is something that they do need to concern themselves with, and this is what he says to them following in verse number 8. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses. You will be my witnesses. You have seen me. You have seen what has happened and you will be my witnesses. You will take what you have seen and you will proclaim what you have seen to others. After you have received power, when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem first and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And as I said before, this is the outline of the book of Acts. The establishment of a political kingdom is not your business, but there's business you need to be about. The pouring out of the Holy Spirit, as we've already said, signifies that salvation has come. God's people have been cleansed from their sin. God's enemies are going to be judged. But according to Luke and Acts, the pouring out of the Spirit also imbues with power, gives power. The Spirit equips the apostles for witness The apostles are to wait for the promise of the Father because they cannot carry out the mission of Jesus without the power of the Holy Spirit. Only He can do the work by His Spirit, which He gives to them. For this reason, it was necessary for Jesus to go away so that the Spirit could be given in order for the work to be carried out. Have you ever considered that? Why did Jesus have to ascend? Why did he have to go to the Father? Well, because his mission must be carried on. And in order for his mission to be carried on, the Spirit must be given to all of his followers so that they can go to all the corners of the earth and carry out his mission. Notice, just for a moment, the trajectory, the trajectory of this mission that the Spirit empowers It begins at Jerusalem, which is the capital city there of Israel. It goes to Judea, the surrounding region, Samaria, and to the uttermost parts of the earth. This outline, this trajectory for the rest of the book, marked by the pouring out of the Spirit, first in Jerusalem, then Judea and Samaria, and then to the world. Sometimes people act like the book of Acts is just, is just everybody speaking in tongues like the entire book of Acts. The fact is, the speaking of tongues is a sign that the Spirit has been given. And it only happens four times in the book of Acts. And those four times, it marks a progression of the gospel going to a new group of people. That's what it does. The book of Acts is a book. Don't miss this. The book of Acts is a book of triumph. Triumph as the gospel of the kingdom of God goes to the world. 
Every page. And if you read it this way, it will come alive to you. Every page is concerned with this gospel proclamation, the gospel of the kingdom of God going forth, progressing to the ends of the earth. And at every corner, in every page, there is opposition. There is opposition to this mission. And Jesus, he overcomes the opposition. There is opposition from within. There is opposition from without. There is opposition from the Jews. There is opposition from the Gentiles. There is opposition from every corner. And yet, Jesus continues his mission. It is the story of the triumph of his gospel. And look, look at this. I want to show this to you. Acts chapter 1 begins with the, the speaking and the proclaiming of the kingdom of God. Go to Acts 28 real quickly. Acts 28. As this mission unfolds, as this story continues, Acts 28 is the end of the book of Acts. But I want you to go to Acts 28 and look at verse 23. When they had appointed a day for him, they came to him at his lodging. This is the Apostle Paul in greater numbers. From morning till evening, he expounded to them. What is Paul teaching? What is Paul preaching? He expounded to them, testifying to the kingdom of God. Now, he's testifying to them the kingdom of God, and he is imprisoned. He is bound. And yet the kingdom of God continues to go forth. This is the entire book of Acts. The kingdom of God continuing. Does not matter who opposes or what kind of opposition comes. The kingdom of God will be proclaimed. All the way to the end. Look down at verse 30. He lived there two whole years at his own expense. And welcomed all who came to him Proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. The book of Acts begins, sets the trajectory for us. The proclamation of the kingdom of God will go forth in power and it will not be opposed. The gospel will be victorious. And this is what you find It begins in the capital of Israel in Jerusalem. And the book ends the capital of Rome, the capital of the known world. The gospel expansion has been accomplished and it continues. Now, the book of Acts is the continuation of the mission of Jesus given to him by his Father in the power of the Spirit to gather a people marked by his Spirit from every corner of the earth for his kingdom. Now this brings us to the end of our introduction. Something remarkable takes place here in the eyes of these apostles. Look at it there in verse number 9. When he had said these things, when he had said these things about the power of the Spirit coming upon them and them being witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the other parts of the earth, when he had said these things, as they were looking on, He was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes on the ground. 
They just appear in the midst of them. These two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. The sum of the message to these men, Jesus is returning. Jesus is coming back. And your job isn't to look into the heavens. It is to get busy with the mission that he has given you to accomplish. Luke 19, a parable in the book of Luke that is familiar possibly to us, the parable of the minas. You remember that story, the parable of the minas of Luke 19, a nobleman. In this parable Jesus gives, a nobleman goes away to receive a kingdom. So this nobleman, he must go away to a higher authority to receive the kingdom, the authority to rule over his kingdom. He's going to receive the authority to rule over the kingdom that he already lives in. Okay, that's the point of the parable. But as he goes, he entrusts ten of his servants with minas, with amount of money. And he says, do business until I come. The rest of that parable recounts the return of that nobleman. He comes in the power of his kingdom and he, he reckons with these that he is entrusted to do his business while he is gone. The point cannot be missed. It's plain. This is a Description of exactly what takes place in the book of Acts. Jesus goes to his father. Jesus goes to his father to receive from his father that kingdom. And when he returns, he will return in power to execute justice. And he will reckon with those who he has entrusted with his mission. With the gospel. The book of Acts records for us this mission. The mission of Jesus that he was given by his Father, which he entrusts to his apostles. His apostles are to carry out this mission in the power of the Spirit as they gather in a people for his kingdom. And when Jesus returns, he will he will force a giving of account now this is a heavy heavy point it's important for us to consider our response to this i hope that you see your place in this story as we've gone through the first 11 verses who are we as the church truth is the book of acts is our story this is our story this is who we are we are his people who have received the gospel of the kingdom that he has marked by his spirit who now have the responsibility to carry out that mission what a what an amazing truth we are we are the continuation of Jesus' ministry. 
on earth. And Jesus is coming back. And we will give account to him. So what is our response? What is our response to what we've heard here? Well, first, and I don't want to miss this, the first question that has to be asked, who will be king? I was sitting with the teenagers the other night at my house. We were doing the Bible study uh, youth night Wednesday night, and I read them a tract entitled, Who Will Be King? The question of that tract is, who will rule your life? And that must be asked to every single one of you here today. Who will be king? Jesus has been declared to be the rightful king, and he is establishing his kingdom And he will bring judgment on those who refuse to acknowledge his rightful rule. Who will be king? Jesus is the king. Will you submit to him? He has died and taken sin upon himself. He has risen again and defeated, triumphed over the grave and over sin. And he has ascended to the Father to secure salvation for all those who believe in him and submit to him as their king. Will you submit to him today as king of your life? Trusting in his work on the cross and resurrection to save you from your sin. The response for those who call themselves believers in Christ, those who are marked by the Spirit of Christ. We also must respond. It it must be acknowledged, it must be realized that we exist in major part to extend the apostolic witness to Jesus everywhere. That is why we exist as his church. The church Uh, does not so much have a mission. The church is the mission. The church is the mission that Jesus has sought to accomplish, that we are continuing. We exist in major part to extend that apostolic witness. They saw him with their own eyes. They proclaimed the truth of who he was. And we have heard and received their witness. And now we are charged with that same charge to carry out his witness To the world. And this is why we plant churches. We've got to go to where the people are. We need to go to where the people need to hear. And so as I was reading through this. And I was considering this. In my spirit and in my mind. I just thought where are we going next? Where are we going next? I hope that all of you who are members of Trinity Church. Are thinking that. Where are we going next? How are we going to get the gospel into other places? what's, What's our strategy? What's our plan for going And taking the gospel to other places. We also need to see and be reminded that the Spirit is central. The Holy Spirit is central for carrying out this mission. This witness. We cannot accomplish this in and of ourselves. I often wonder why the church is often powerless in its witness. 
I think it is because we forget that it is the Spirit of God that carries this witness out. It cannot be done in human effort. It cannot be manufactured. It cannot be accomplished by gimmicks. It cannot be accomplished by strategies that are just carried out in human reasoning. It has to be the Spirit of God. And do you know what the Spirit of God does? The Spirit of God does the impossible. The Spirit of God takes people who oppose the kingdom of Christ and transforms them into worshipers of God. And that's what you're going to see throughout the book of Acts. The impossible happens over and over and over and over again. And it, it makes me wonder, why have we lost faith in the impossible happening? He is in the business of transforming souls, saving those who oppose him. I also want to warn us, and I, I don't think of anyone here who has this, but I have to warn us because I think it's here in the passage. The idle fixation with the end and its timing and its, its chronological events. The idle fixation with the end and its timing is the wrong focus for God's people. Why? Because we know he's returning, and before he returns, there is work to do. As he says to his apostles, it is not for you to know the times or seasons. Don't busy yourself with what is the Father's business. You have your business to carry out, so carry it out. And how often... The fixation with the chronology of end time things. How often that distracts us from what is our business to be involved with. That idle fixation we ought to do away with. To watch in our own lives. And then the church. The church. This is the final application I have here. The church is to be the evidence that his kingdom has broken in to the fallen world. The church is to be that evidence. I, I love this analogy of embassy. When we think of an embassy in another country, a country establishes their embassy and, and by, do, by so doing, it's a place where they are represented in another country, in a foreign land, an embassy. That is, in fact, what the church is. The church is an embassy waving the flags of the kingdom, evidencing the reality that Jesus is the king, that he has poured out his spirit upon his people, that he has accomplished full salvation for his people, and that the kingdom, physical, literal, is coming with his return. This is what the church is to do. We are to evidence the truthfulness of his kingdom, the reality of his kingdom. And, and so in a way, every time we gather, every time we gather, 
this is his kingdom coming to some level of realization here on earth. In fact, we are, by our very gathering, signaling to the world that its end is coming. It is a type of protest that we make against the kingdoms of the earth that would oppose the true king of heaven. And this is what we do every week when we gather. We are to call one another to holiness, to godliness. We are to be unified. And this is going to be a huge theme through the book of Acts. The unity of the church is what gives evidence to the truthfulness of Christ's kingdom. And this is why unity must be pursued at all costs. This is the introduction to the book of Acts. I'm praying for us as we go through this wonderful, engaging, fantastic book that we would not simply just be interested with what it details for us, but that we would respond and that it would strengthen us in our faith and that it would embolden us in our witness and that it would propel us and compel us to be the witnesses that he has made us to be both in the gathered church and in our personal lives. Father, we thank you for this word that we have received today. We thank you for the book of Acts and its truth. I pray that you would give us again hearts to believe and eyes to see and a desire and a will to obey you. I pray that you would take this book and work in us over the next several months a faith in you that would keep us, that would motivate us, that would transform us, change us. Father, I pray that you would shake us out of our lethargy our complacency, that you would expose to us anything in our hearts that is distracting or discrediting to our witness. I pray that you would give us focus for the task ahead and a desire to put our hands to the plow, to be about the business that you have given us, knowing that it is not our work but the work of your spirit It is only you that can do the work necessary. I, I pray that we would strive for work that can only be attributed to you. That we could stand back and say, there's no way we could have done that. There's no way we could have done this. But that it would be obvious that you have worked and accomplished your will and your mission through Trinity Church. We pray for your blessing upon this work here, and that it would honor you and glorify you in every way. We pray this in your name. Amen.